I'm Robert, and you're listening to The Outfall, where we share the backstories of our water world and infrastructure. A quick shout out to our Patreon sponsors who help pay for the not-so-fun costs like hosting services, music licensing fees, and software bills. Thank you for allowing us to keep doing this. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. You remember that scene from The Matrix, right? It's when Morpheus gives Neo a choice between two futures. If you're like me, you've seen the vast cranes from a distant port maybe in places like Charleston, and then your attention turns back to real life, sort of like Neo. However, in the last two years, we've all seen when the supply chain matrix freezes and we awake out of this wonderland, one of the critical pieces of the supply chain happens at our ports. So today, we go down the rabbit hole to the water's edge where commerce, engineering, logistics, and history, and water meet. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Our Morpheus, or travel guide, is a guy named Walter. So my name is Walter Lagern, and I am the Senior Director of Engineering and Facilities at the South Carolina Port Authority here in Charleston. My position is I'm in charge of all capital improvement projects, maintenance projects, and also maintaining all of the terminal facilities that the Port Authority operates and owns. I've been here now three years and eight months. I've known Walter since I started my career. He was a fellow consultant and I got to know him through our water association. Now, when he took the job for the South Carolina Port Authority a few years ago, he started posting these fantastic pictures of giant cranes at the port to his LinkedIn feed. And I knew I needed to catch up with him again. I had worked with the Port Authority, so I was very familiar with, uh, particularly on the engineering side. I had done design work for them in my past careers uh, at multiple different consulting firms, so I was pretty familiar. I guess the the things that kind of struck me was the culture of the port. Everybody was looking to me to do something to make a change and to be able to um, create a more high-performing department. We're a very small group. There's really it's just seven of us, including myself. And we're tasked with jobs like the Leatherman Terminal. But the design and construction work, really, actually, the construction work started in 2018 when I arrived. And we had to still finish design of most of the facilities. We started with the Wharf Project, which was the first part. So this story begins in a hotel room in Charleston. I had taken my family for a long weekend. We ate well, walked the streets. Who doesn't love Charleston, right? I set up a meeting with Walter at 10 in the morning, and I didn't want to be late. Well, we barely made it on time and I met Walter at the South Carolina Ports Headquarters. After catching up, we grabbed our hard hats and vests and entered the Wando Terminal, which felt like we were entering a different world. I think the first thing that they just notice is they're just, they're just in awe of the it's just sheer volume of, of cargo. I think the other thing that catches them, you know, is, is just the sheer size of everything. Um, the ships, the cranes, the size of the terminals themselves, Wando is about 600 acres. Leatherman Terminal is total right now is about 300 acres. Um, so they're really 
big facilities, and you, when you see these ships coming and going, um, they used to be, when I first came out here years and years ago as a consultant, they were, you know, 2,000, 3,000 TEUs, you know. So now they're, you know, two to three times the capacity of some of these things. And uh, so they're just huge. It's like a floating city going by, so it's pretty incredible. And then just the, the sheer activity that's involved in, in an active terminal. Um, it's pretty amazing. There's, there's cranes swinging cargo. There's trucks running everywhere. There's, um, you know, these, these gantry cranes running back and forth up and down these um, you know, rows of containers. There's people running around who are keeping track of all those things. The stevedores are tracking those and making sure the boxes are going to the right places in the yard or to the right place on the ship. Um, there's just uh, just a ton of different things. The activity is pretty amazing. I think that's what really, in my wife's case, she was like, she just couldn't believe how much stuff was going on at one point. And I think and, and the size of things, you know, I was coming home and talking to her about the size of the cranes and how they're built and all that kind of stuff. And she didn't get it until she was standing next to one. And it's, you know, they're towering. They're huge pieces of equipment. The South Carolina Port Authority actually has a $62 billion impact on the state of South Carolina. One in 10 jobs are directly linked to the port. South Carolina itself is uh, probably the most port dependent um, state in the whole United States at this point. Our, it's a larger component of our economy percentage wise than any other state. So again, like I say, it's, 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 it's 62 million, $62 billion, that's just in state and another $12 billion of other associated um, impacts in, in our surrounding states based on this economic analysis that they do. Um, you know, we ship in and out. We basically are about, a, I want to say the percentage is about 75% imports, 25% exports, which is pretty high for the United States because we import more than we export by a lot. Like I say, one in 10 jobs, the average salary of the port-related employees is considerably higher than the state average. Um, and the state employees, not, not only the port employees, but basically the industries that are affected by it. So it's got a huge economic impact on the state. And we're here to work for the state. Our job is really to provide, again, commerce and economic opportunities. We are just inside the gate, heading slowly to the main dock. I'm glad Walter's driving us because, you know what, there was activity everywhere and I'm pretty sure I'd get hit by some large truck if I was driving. The scale of the port's intimidating from the ground level. You know, there's stacks of rows of containers, almost seem stacked too high. There's a group of containers all painted white in a group that are all the refrigerated units that are all stacked together. So we asked Walter, what happened to all of this during the pandemic? And what's happened during the pandemic is people have started to like, we, did, we didn't have any backups. We were keeping up. We, were, we increased our hours. Our, our operators worked really, really hard. It, amazingly hard. It's amazing how many hours these guys were putting in on a constant basis just to make sure they get the stuff moving through. What happened was that some of these other terminals and you know, some other ports that got backed up. Eventually, the ship lines started to shift and say, oh, look, well, Clem you know, Charleston's open. Let's move a ship up there. And next thing you know, there were more of those here than we could handle. So back around Thanksgiving is when we started having a backup. And at one point since then, we actually had about 35 ships at anchor at the worst time. And then, of course, the shipping lines looked at that and said, okay, now they're all backed up there. We'll start re reassigning them to some other places. So they started doing that. We continued to do as much as we could, and we actually increased our hours. We've done 
all kinds of kind of innovative ideas on an operating side to rapidly, as rapidly as possible, get the ships in and out. It's working around the clock. It's it's prioritizing ships, you know, like prioritizing ships that are taking more boxes than dropping boxes. The optimum space in the yard is about being occupied by about 60%, uh, you know, covered with, with boxes. That gives you enough room to load and unload without having to drive all over the place looking for a one spot. You know, it's like, it's an analogy would be, you know, going shopping at the mall during normal times or going at Christmas time. You know, you have to wait until you can find a place to park at Christmas time. It's the same thing here. So when that happens, it slows the whole process down. So it takes a very long time to unload a ship. And that's kind of where we are now. So it's like we have to prioritize, we have to create space. And by creating space, we do things like we'll prioritize ships that are coming in that are more export loaded than import loaded. So they're taking more things away than they, you know, they're dropping off. So we did a lot of that. Um, we were bringing in smaller ships that we could just process quicker, you know, so we could kind of get the, you know, the queue down. We started at like a one o'clock shift where they started unloading ships at one o'clock in the morning. They had never done that before. And we also started doing things like opening our gates, you know, very early in the morning, like three o'clock in the morning. So the truck drivers could come and start taking the boxes out that they're just supposed to go to delivery to make space. We used to never do Sunday gates for the truck drivers. We do that now. We're actually doing that all from now until the end of June. We've been doing it since, gosh, I think January. So yeah, we've extended our hours. We've done a lot of different things from an operation standpoint. As we drove a little closer to the waterfront, the cranes were starting to look a little bit bigger. I realized space around the port is at a premium and everything about the port is built around movement and fluidity getting those containers off and on the ship as fast and as safely as possible. It's a combination of space and speed. So what, what makes capacity here is, is really is space, how much area you have to maneuver in, and speed. So um, when, we, when we talk about our terminals, we'll say like New Leatherman Terminal has a capacity of 700,000 TEUs a, a year. But that's dependent upon how fast the the boxes can come in, be unloaded, reloaded onto a truck, and basically processed through the terminal. Um, and that's a factor of how many ships are coming, how much how much cargo there is, how many boxes. Um, and like for an instance, typically our yard is about 65% full. Um, we stack our containers. Uh, we use what they call um, rubber tire gantry cranes to put them in big rows, so they're very condensed blocks. Um, Back in the early days, they used to just sit on a chassis, and it was just a big parking lot with chassis with boxes on it. But um, now, now land is, of course, of a premium. So now, to maximize that, we've condensed that into this RTG model. And so, so the Wando terminal is our largest. It gets about is it 2.4 million TEUs a year. Um, that's the capacity. The, the Leatherman terminal right now is at 700,000 a year. Uh, I want to say North Charleston handles about um, 500,000 a year. Uh, and then the terminals at um, Union Pier and Columbus Street are what we call break bulk. So that's the stuff that comes that's not in a, not in a container. So that can be anything from a, you know, a turbine uh, to just break bulk type items, vehicles, um, or Columbus Street um, terminal right at the foot of the Cooper River Bridge is basically where all of the BMW exports from Greer they're all put on, on rail. The rail ends up at the Columbus Street Terminal, and from there, they're 
they're loaded onto what they call row-row or roll-on, roll-off ships, and then they sail around the world and are delivered. So at any one time there, we can have up to 10 to 12,000 BMWs and Volvos and some Mercedes and other vehicles out there that are, you know, regularly loaded onto ships and sent off. It's one of our biggest exports. We finally pull up beside one of the new ship to shore cranes. You know, I had one of the exact moments when I finally saw the space shuttle up close many years ago. You know, the space shuttle was way more massive than I thought it would be, which is a similar feeling as I stare at the beast of a crane. You should see these metal hooks used to bolt the crane to the pier. Huge! By the way, we've posted plenty of pictures in the podcast episode show notes. The crane is big and almost fragile looking at the same time. The crane was recently purchased for over $11 million and shipped by boat from China to Charleston. We've got pictures of that too. Interesting. They have a lift capacity of 155 feet and can be used on ships up to 24 containers wide. Just try to visualize that. As ship sizes increase, ports like Charleston are investing in these large cranes to allow them to handle taller and wider stacks of cargo efficiently. There is a lot of technology in those things. Actually, it's really pretty, I was shocked. I thought they were just kind of brute force machines. I've been on some of the smaller ones. The ones we have now are quite large. Um, The ones we have here at Wando can lift the box 155 feet and push it out 212 feet you know, to, fit, to get over and above and out to the outside of a ship. The ones we just put at the um, Leatherman Terminal go to 169 feet, uh, and they can go out 228 feet. And the amazing difference between the two of those cranes is crazy, just the size. But they are all, you know, computer-controlled, um, censored galore. I mean, they are they're high-tech pieces of equipment. They're not just, you know... Uh, um, you know, I, I look around sometimes at some of the construction sites and it's really the old mechanical cranes, you know, where everything's mechanical. There's not an electronic thing on them. These things are highly, you know, electronic. Um, again, like all the different sensors, the spreader bars that actually pick the boxes up, they're hydraulic. There, there's just a, every kind of technology you can imagine in a machine is there. The RTGs or the rubber tire gantry cranes that we purchased for um, the Leatherman terminal are actually hybrids. Um, they're all electric, like the ship-to-shore cranes, or those are the tall ones you see on the wharf. They're all run on what they call medium voltage, um, so it's basically all electric. They're plugged in, um, just more efficient. They used to be, they used to actually, they, were, they always used electric motors because electric motors are just smoother and all that kind of stuff, but they used to have diesel generators inside them. So that the big house at the top of the train used to be a diesel engine in there, which was just running a generator. But So now we just plug them in so there's no diesel up there um, but the ones that the RTGs we have here at the Wanda Terminal are not predominantly they're, um, they're diesel, just like the old cranes were, they're diesel generators with an electric generator. Um, but we purchased um, hybrid uh, rubber tire gantry cranes over at, um, we've got 25 of them over at the Leatherman Terminal. And those are, you know, they've got a small generator and a battery pack, and they're just like, you know, the hybrid cars. And Amazingly enough, we noticed right out of the chute, we were using half the amount of fuel in those as we were in our diesels. So great, you know, great run times, super efficient, um, and also, you know, environmentally sensitive. You know, they, they definitely re- reduced our emissions by half. 
We climbed a short set of stairs and crammed into a suck in your gut small elevator that took us up to the operating level of the crane. When the doors opened, we were greeted with an amazing view of Charleston. I tried not to look down. We made our way along the catwalk to the operator's cabin. We all took turns sitting in the operator's chair, pretending we were moving the crane. Fun fact, guess how long an operator stays in their chair working? You know, I guess eight hours. I was wrong. They rotate out every two and a half hours. Why? It's that demanding of a job. Out in the distance, I could see an ongoing dredging operation. South Carolina Ports is on track to have the deepest harbor on the East Coast at 52 feet. One of the things that we are just now completing that's really pretty amazing is that we're completing a deepening of the harbor uh, and all the access channels to it down to an elevation of 52 feet below mean low water, which will make it the deepest harbor on the East Coast. Uh, which allows us to be able to service the largest container ships currently sailing. So they get up to about 19 to 20,000 TEUs on a ship. They're about 1,300 feet long. So they're really, really large vessels. I mean, we're just now completing that. Actually, we'll complete the last, it was done in five contracts. We'll complete the last contract this fall. And that'll make the entire depth of the harbor at 52. So that's one of the things we do. But the other thing that we do very actively here is on like all of our projects. You know, we're constantly dredging, maintenance dredging, of course, the dredging associated with the deepening of the harbor. We maintain and operate, uh, along with the, co the Corps of Engineers, a bunch of disposal areas on Daniel Island and around the harbor. So that's a big, you know, that's a big project for us. We're constantly having to basically maintain those facilities and dry them out, raise the dikes and add more capacity. We move about a, I think it's a, about a million yards a year just for maintenance of the dredging, just the berths of the, um, the terminals. That's not the channel dredging that goes on, which is the responsibility of the Corps of Engineers. But when you get to within 150 feet of the, of the berth, that's our responsibility. We have two different ways of disposing it. We have upland disposal, which is are the dredge disposal areas we have on Daniel Island and along the, along the Cooper and um, Wando Rivers. And essentially they're put into big basins. They're allowed to dry out. And then we take those, take the material that's in the basin and then we tend to use it to, to raise the dikes and then continue to pump in there. So we have capacity based on that and we continually are working on those sites. Another thing is called an offshore disposal area. It's called the ODMDS. That's the abbreviation for it. I, I love saying it because it kind of sounds like a rhyme, but ODMDS. It's basically an offshore disposal area and it's offshore just to the south of the channel. And it's just a big area that's been cordoned off and the Corps uses it and we use it um, to basically dispose of dredging material. And the, and the material itself, it ranges anything from, you know, the sediments that are just flushing and washing down the, down the rivers, you know, from up, upstream to when you're doing like major deepening, you're basically in the Cooper Marl clays, which is interesting because you're, like carve, you're carving out essentially a channel. Pretty neat. And that's disposed of offshore for the most part. As we headed back home that day, we spent most of the time talking about the port. Who knew ports could provoke such a discussion? Just like Neo, when he starts to see the matrix, suddenly we all notice containers on trucks that were heading down to Charleston, heading back from Charleston, containers on trains. The supply chain matrix is everywhere. Even now in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television, you can feel it. 
We want to thank Walter for joining us and allowing us to learn more about the poor. Walter loves what he does, and I love people like Walter. It's infectious. After our experience, I picked up a book called The Box. It's about how shipping containers transform the world. I know, fascinating, right? Well, although according to my son, it looked like a perfect dad book, but oh well. It was good. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to The Outfall. David, Amy, and I would love to hear your comments. So if you enjoy our podcast, please help us. Subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Become a Patreon member or share the podcast with a friend. We'll see you next time.